Well, we've been in a series where we've been kind of working our way through the, the book of Acts. This is for, uh, for any new folks that we have here who haven't been here with us before or they're just coming back now, and we're really glad you guys are here, but we have been working our way through the book of Acts, uh, I don't know, kind of slowly. We've been in it since probably the end of February or so, and today we're going to cross over and start with uh, chapter 6, which is apparently exciting for one or two people. Um, I'm just happy that we're getting through it, I guess. But uh, we have been in a series, and it, it, the title of it's been, uh, it's known as You Will Be My Witnesses, the whole idea and concept behind engaging the book of Acts uh, as a new church is just to sort of get our marching orders from the historical count of the church and its incarnation and how it you know, began to grow and, and change the community around it and how the dynamics inside of it developed in these things. And so you know, we've been trying to, uh, we, we get it as a church, our identities in Christ, but we've been wanting to really know how to best be a church and how to gather and honor God and be scriptural. And so we felt as a leadership team that Book of Acts would be a great starting place for us. Makes sense, right? Yeah? So, so that's where we've been. Um, we finished up chapter 5 last week, and, and in that section, just to give you a little context, and as a note, all of our sermons are posted at our website, www.redemptionhillmodesto.com. It's a really long title, uh, name, but once you get it in there, it's worth going to, but all our sermons are available there. But we did wrap up chapter 5 last week. For a little context, we read how the apostles basically were be- beaten for preaching the gospel and how they rejoiced in their suffering and then how they took the gospel to the streets and kind of went house to house. That's kind of how that section or that chapter ends. Uh, at this point in the narrative, the Lord Jesus has grown his church exponentially, just massive. The church is just growing and growing and growing. The Lord is adding people to the church, numbers to the church, disciples to the church every day at this point. Every moment it seems like people are hearing the gospel, and they're responding in repentance and faith, and the church is just exploding. It's growing and growing. The church now has thousands and thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people at this point. I mean, when the church kind of kicked off in the day of Pentecost, it started with about 3,000, then a day or two later, another 2,000 were added, and so there's been people just consistently since Pentecost being added to the church, so it's probably safe to say that it's in the tens of thousands now. There's just a lot, a lot of people. The Lord is saving people. He's doing a work in Jerusalem. So thousands and thousands. And, and the apostles really, uh, we've been reading them and studying them quite a bit and how they were leaders in the church and how they did all the teaching and all these things. But they really had multiple duties. They were responsible for teaching. They were responsible for healing people. Uh, and they were also responsible for making sure that the things that the early, or not the early Christians, that the Christians, the people they were ministering to, they were responsible for making sure that the things that were being brought in were being distributed out to all the families and all of the Christians and the people of the community. Because as we read, man, the church was a very generous, this early church was very generous, explosively generous, just selling properties and homes and things and possessions to care for one another. It was really an extraordinary thing that was going on. And so the apostles, what? They oversaw the teaching, preaching of the gospel. They oversaw healing. They were doing all the healing and stuff, and they were healing multitudes of people. That child next door needs to be healed right now. Is that your kid? Exercise the demon. Watch, I'll get him right through the wall. He's going ballistic over there. I love it. And so they were also responsible for distributing the the things and the stuff that that came in. And um, you can imagine, you know... uh, 
uh, just as a, as a pastor, for me, just to minister to a group this size, and it's a little larger, people come and go, and you know, pe- we don't have all of our normal people here today, but just, uh, just ministering to a group of like 100 people is a, is a pretty good responsibility, you know, and, and then over at, when I was at Big Valley, I had probably, I don't know, man, 150 kids there that, you know, on and off that I was ministering to, and all those lay leaders and everything, and that was that was exhausting. That was incredible. What an incredible amount of work that took. And so think of the apostles. You know, you got 12 guys, and you've got thousands and thousands of people that they're ministering to. Doesn't sound like a ministry job that I would sign up for. And by the way, we have a church of 32,000, and there's 12 of you. Oh, man, are you kidding me? And so these guys, I think, were reasonably taxed. You know, they they loved serving the Lord. I mean, it was their calling and preaching and doing these things. They absolutely loved this stuff. But the church was growing, and when the church grows, needs expand and grow. And so these guys, they were pretty well taxed, man. And and so we're going to kind of look at what that looks like today, and we're going to look at how some ministry opportunity comes up, and ministry increases, and ministry opportunity comes up. And we're going to look at how... The apostles basically dealt with the demands of the church. It's really spectacular how they dealt with these things. And great model for all of us, especially for pastoral staff, especially for somebody like me. So we're going to look at 6, 1 to 7. <laughs> I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll study it together. Amen? Hopefully you've got uh, note sheets and everything that you need ready. If you're a note taker, I'm not a note taker, but maybe you're a note taker, so you might want to take notes. But let me read this text. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they, and when they said what they said, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose uh, Stephen, his name was Stephanos, they would say, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prohoris, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon and Pumbaa, and uh, they got the weirdest names, Timon, it's, 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 it, if you're going to pronounce it, it's, it's T-E-E-Mon, oh, Mon, T-Mon, isn't that funny, and uh, the next guy is uh, uh, Parmenas, and then we have, and we, we think it's Nicholas, but it's Nikolaus. So he had these guys, and Nicolaus was a proselyte of Antioch. And then it says, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then he says this. Luke closes out this great little section with this. He says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, as we just move to this time of study, Lord, we... We want to be focused, and we want to hear from you, Lord. Uh, we all, you know, need for you to do a divine work in our own lives. I know I do. I need that, Lord. And so help us to be focused in this moment. Help us to uh, put away with the distractions of this life and of the world and just the things that bombard us. And we come into, 
We come into church to worship you, and we bring a lot of that stuff with us. And so help just to rid us of those things. May we be really focused in, uh, not so much as uh, from an academic level, Lord, but in a relational level with you, that we're seeking to be one with you right now and seeking to hear from you and to be loved and cared for by you in this moment, because that's ultimately what you're aiming to do. And so may we enjoy this sweet time of learning together. Jesus, keep your hands on it, protect us, open our minds and hearts to your truth. Thank you, Lord, for your presence, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin with that first verse there. It says, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As the church grew, it began to encounter the problems of uh, an institution, I suspect, here. The Jewish nation has always had a great sense of responsibility for those who are less fortunate. In the synagogue, there was a routine custom. Two collections went round the market and the private houses every Friday morning uh, uh, and made a collection for the needy, partly in money and partly in goods. Later in the day, this was distributed. Those who were temporarily in need received enough to enable them to carry on. And those who were permanently unable to support themselves received enough for 14 meals. That is enough for two meals a day for the week ahead. Now, the fund from which this distribution was made was called the kupa, or we would call it the basket. In addition to this, a house-to-house collection was made daily for those uh, whose needs were more pressing, and that was called the tamhui, or tray. It is clear, what we see in our text here, it is very, very clear that the Christian church took over this already existing Jewish custom. Uh, last week we read about how the apostles went house to house. Now, there, it's absolute, one of the absolute reasons why they went house to house was to take the gospel out to those who didn't attend, this, you know, attend the temple and those services there. That's where most of the preaching was happening. But they also went to the houses to make a collection for that uh, tamui offering, to get things together. So they weren't just receiving things as people were bringing them to Solomon's portico in the temple because that's what was happening. They were also, the apostles were also going house to house to collect things. And so we can see very clearly that the Christian church really sort of adopted this Jewish method of meeting the needy's needs, which is really awesome. And uh, we don't read really anywhere else where anyone else in Scripture or in that community was actually doing these things. So the Christian church really stood up. You know, they had this great love that had been shed and poured out on this great grace, and then they responded to that. They responded to the Lord's grace and love with gratitude, which was manifested in generosity and giving and giving. And so they adopted these things from the Jews and really began to minister to one another, collecting things, giving them out on Fridays, just amazing stuff that was going on here. But among the Jews themselves, there was a rift. Now, in the Christian church, there were two kinds of Jews. There were the Jerusalem uh, and the Palestinian Jews who spoke the ancestral language, which was Aramaic. These local or indigenous Jews prided themselves that there was no foreign element in their lives. Uh, Basically, they were very, very prideful that they were kind of the 
OG original Jew guys and gals and leaders and people in that community. They weren't Jewish from some other province or from some other far place. And uh, there was this thing called the Diaspora that happened years before. And, you know, with like Nebuchadnezzar and these kings that had conquered Israel, they took the Jews out of the land. And many of them remained for generations and generations in these faraway places. And so they were sort of considered to be like foreign Jews. They were still Jewish, but they were sort of foreign. And so these local Jews, these Palestinian or Jerusalem, Jerusalemites is what they were called, they were very prideful that, hey man, we're from the homeland, you know, it, it's, it's all about us, we're from the homeland, we're the purest form of Jew, as if there were such a thing, or whatever. And so they were very, very prideful. Now, there were also these Jews, as I mentioned, from the diaspora and other factors that were from foreign countries, you know, and, and what happened is that we had Pentecost that just happened, and a lot of these Jews traveled great distances, these foreign Jews traveled great distances to come to Pentecost, and while there, what happened? They made the great discovery of Jesus Christ. They came up for Pentecost, they saw miracles and things happening, you know, the, uh, Peter uh, paralleled the things that were happening with the Old Testament and then said that these things were being fulfilled in Christ and Jesus is the reason for the season and all this stuff. He proclaimed the gospel, 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 and a lot of these foreign Jews were getting saved like crazy. I mean, they were just, they were, oh, the Messiah came. Many of them probably didn't even know that he had come because of where they were from. And so lots and lots of them made the great discovery of Christ. Now, many of these foreign Jews had been away from Palestine, as I said, for generations. And they had forgotten their Hebrew and spoke only Greek. And those particular Christians, that, or those particular Jews that had left behind Judaism, that had come from foreign lands or whatever, didn't speak the language of the land and all that, they spoke Greek, they were called Hellenists. So that's who the Hellenists were. The, the Greeks actually had a process called the process of Hellenization, and that's where they would take some people group or some folks that weren't Greek, and they would sort of indoctrinate and ingrain them in Greek culture and philosophy and all that, and that was called Hellenization. And so you have these Jews here. You have the standard-issue Jews of the community. They're the OG, original, local guys, you know, and they're very prideful about that. Then you have this sort of mixing of these foreign Hellenistic Jews or whatever we want to call them, these Greek-speaking Jews. Now, what happens here, though, the natural consequence of the pride of the OG Jews, the natural, natural consequence uh, by these very snobbish Aramaic-speaking Jews is that they really, really, as I said, they really looked down on these Hellenists or these foreign Jews. Now, this contempt that they had, this contempt, dislike that they had for these foreign Jews it was affecting the daily distribution of alms. And now we see in the text that there is a complaint that the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, they were being neglected. And I suspect they were being neglected even intentionally by the OG original local Jews. There was just a rift between them. Now, here's the crazy thing. They're in Christ. And, and you know, and, and you've, got, you've got just a matter of weeks since many of them have come to know Christ. And when I look back on my Christian walk, two weeks into it, boy, I knew Christ, but boy, I sure did other things that I was doing before that I shouldn't have been doing. I mean, there was like a process of sanctification and transformation that sort of began, right? And so you've got Jews on both sides. You've got Hellenistic Jews, and you've got these Jerusalem Jerusalemites Jews, and they have tension, but they're still in the body of Christ. 
And I think that one of the reasons why there's all this tension is because of spiritual immaturity. But they knew Christ. And so there's trouble here. One group says to the other group, you're treating our widows unfairly. And so they go to the apostles and make a complaint. They lodge a complaint. And what we're seeing here in the text, this isn't the first recorded instance of sin in the first century church. We saw that weeks ago when we studied Ananias and Sapphira. But what we see here now in the church historical narrative, now we see the first instance of dissension. Up until this point, it's been what? Unity, unity, unity. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Give our stuff away. Give our stuff away. We're devoted to the teaching and and the breaking of bread and dinner and, and communion and all these things. We've seen all that. It's been beautiful. But now dissension arises in the church. And it's a nasty, ugly, ugly thing. So, we really don't know uh, if there was some false motive behind the neglecting of these Hellenistic widows. We don't know. I suspect there was, but we don't know. And it's safe to say that the Hellenists were already a pretty paranoid group because they knew that the other side didn't like them. So we don't know what the motive is, but we can be certain that there was a problem because there was neglect. Now, another thing that comes to mind here, I mean, just... My mind is weird. It's, well, it's depraved, you know? I mean, what do you expect? It's being renewed by Christ every moment, but for the most part, it's default is sin. But, and this isn't a sinful thing, but I, was, I just think of weird things. How bad could this be? How many widows are we talking? Think about that. Our widows are being abused. They're not being taken care of. I'm thinking there's two of them, right? I mean, think about this. How many widows... Would there have been Hellenistic widows too? Now, the Hellenists were the minority group in the community. And so, if they're the minority group, if they're the smaller group, and they were a way smaller group, then we can deduce that the amount of widows that they would have had would have been relatively small. But that's not true at all. There was actually, during this time, an extremely high number of widows and Hellenistic widows in the community. Now, one of the reasons for this was because, uh, according to Judaism, the resurrection would take place in Jerusalem, not anywhere else. And so if you were a Jew that lived somewhere else in the world, you wanted to come spend your last days living in Jerusalem so that you could be resurrected from there. And this is insane, but the belief was, if you lived somewhere else and you passed away and the resurrection happened, you would have to roll underground all the way to Jerusalem, and then be resurrected there with the rest of the people. That was what they taught people. And according to scholars, that was a very unpleasant experience, you know. (laughs) This stinks. I'm 2,000 miles away. Oh, no, here comes the ocean. I shouldn't be doing this. I feel like I'm going to hurl right now. But is that insane? Now, you have to keep in mind that the Jews were very superstitious. They still are today. They had a lot of crazy, weird beliefs. But they actually believed, well, since, let's see, okay, since the resurrection's happening here, then that means the people that are Jews, you know, the righteous people from all other lands, they're going to have to roll all the way back here. And so what does that say? That says that people, when they got old, they came and lived their last years in Jerusalem so they didn't have to roll underground. And then the men would die because men always die first. That's just wrong, guys, right? We always bounce like 20 years before our wife. Aaron, you're applauding that. I want out of here, right? I get to be with the Lord before you, you know? 
But it's crazy to think that this was a real practice. You know, they'd get old and they'd go there and then the men would die and they'd leave behind their wives and they were the widows. Isn't that insane? But that's what they believed. So that's one of the great factors. And then there's the whole angle of they believed um, that it was a, uh, oh, what would be the word for it? Oh, let's see, where is it in my text? Blah, 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 blah. They believed that it was sort of a noble thing to spend your last days in Jerusalem and pass away or in that local region too. So it was the whole rolling underground weird thing and then it was this sort of virtuous, noble thing to die there. And so, isn't that crazy? I mean, how, if you're like really old and you're like way up in this province, how do you travel via donkey at 70 years old or whatever? You know, I don't even think people lived that long. I think they lived in their 50s, but just the whole thing is crazy. But it ended up in a lot of widows in this area, an extraordinary amount of them. And so there's probably a lot of Hellenistic widows that are being overlooked. And, and the Hellenists are like, eh, I don't think so, man. They're not at all thrilled about it. They're not at all happy about the fact that many of their people are, and they believe, deliberately overlooked. They're not receiving. And we're talking about food and stuff here. So this is serious. I mean, at, you know, at 60 years old or whatever, you're a widow, how, how many days do you go without a meal? And can you imagine how ugly that would be for people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ who willfully keep that stuff back? Oh, I can't stand those stinking Hellenists. Oh, they're in the body of Christ, man. You need to rethink that. Ah! And then to hold back meals? Oh, man. It's, it's an ugly, ugly, ugly thing, I think, that's playing out here. Ugly. Now, I think unlike the rest of the community, the church really was stepping up and trying to meet all these needs. And I, I do not believe that the apostles were aware of these, you know, this mistreatment. I mean, there's no way they would have tolerated it whatsoever. They would not have tolerated it. They wanted to meet all those needs and stuff. And the, the church wanted to meet those needs. And then you have this crazy weird thing going on here. And the, the apostles didn't discriminate against anyone. The only thing they discriminated against was whether you're in Christ or not. And if you're not, you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They discriminated against sin and a fallen position. There's no way they would have said, oh, the Hellenists or whatever. And yes, they were men. And they made mistakes. And there were some instances where Peter, you know, kind of sided with the circumcised group and then the Apostle Paul lit him up like a Christmas tree in front of his peers and, and he changed his position. But for the most part, they wouldn't have tolerated this whatsoever. And, and they preached the gospel and they cared for people no matter who they were, especially for the brothers in Christ. So again, a complaint of abuse has been lobbied against the Hebrews by the Hellenists before the Apostles. Now, how did the Apostles respond Two, it says, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is a weird statement. This sounds like we're not going to help you. Isn't that what that seems like? <clears throat> Sorry, wrong department. That's not at all what it is, but it almost sounds like, hey, we can't stop doing what we're doing to do this or whatever. The first thing that we see is the apostles brought the Hellenists. I think it might have been the whole church, but probably the Hellenists. They brought this body of Hellenistic Jews together. They, they assembled them and put them together, we see. It says, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, could be the whole church. I think it's the Hellenists. 
And then they declared before these Hellenists, or maybe the whole church, that it would be wrong for them to give up preaching uh, than to go and to serve tables. Now, serving tables can mean in the Greek, money matters. So this, what they could be talking about, serving tables, could be putting food on tables for widows, but it could just be dealing with money matters. There was great amounts of money coming in. And so the apostles were receiving food, they were receiving blankets and clothing and things and all this stuff and a lot of money. And so it could be that he's saying that, man, we, we don't, we're preaching the gospel, man. We don't have time to deal with the cash flow and getting that out to all the different people or whatever. Now, the obvious inference here is that the Hellenists, and it, it's inferred in the text, and I think it's true, it looks like the Hellenists demanded that the apostles not only investigate the situation, but that they take over and do the work themselves so that the work would remain fair, so that the dis- distribution would remain fair. How did the apostles respond? Basically, paraphrase, they said, no, we don't have time to look into this or to take on the responsibility ourselves because we must remain, uh, we must remain preaching the word of God, the gospel. That's what we have to keep doing. Now, prior to this particular experience, we have seen how the devil used the Sanhedrin to try to stop the apostles from preaching in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, they were warned several times. They've been brought before the Sanhedrin a couple of times. They were thrown into jail. Uh, they even received a beating at one time. And so we have seen how the devil has been using the Sanhedrin to try to get them, to try to derail the preaching of the gospel. And yet we've also seen how the apostles prevailed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our text, I believe the devil was trying to do the same thing. Only this time, he didn't use the Sanhedrin. No, he used a potential ministry opportunity. The devil wanted to lure the apostles away from preaching Jesus by presenting them with an opportunity to engage in some hands-on, compassion-based ministry. Now, and it sounds wicked for me to say that, but that's precisely what the enemy's trying to do here with them. He knows that if he can get them to stop preaching the gospel, that he can begin to really maneuver and manipulate and do some things. And he's been using the Sanhedrin all along. And guess what, friends? He uses our brothers and sisters in the church all the time to accomplish his purposes too. And sometimes we just don't realize that. We're just ignorant of that fact. But he uses people all the time, all the time. Satan does it. And I think that's what's going on here. I think he's trying to manipulate the situation with a ministry opportunity. Now, there is nothing wrong with tending to widows. The Apostle James said that tending to widows and orphans is true religion. But if the proclamation of God's word is neglected or abandoned by ministers so that they can focus on compassion-based ministry, we now have a huge problem. And this problem exists in the church today. This is a very prevalent problem in the church today. Ministers are stretched incredibly thin in churches. They have so many things on their plates to do. They have seemingly endless responsibilities, especially youth ministers. I was one. I know how it works. During any given week, 
A youth minister is expected to be in meetings, visit schools, disciple students, train lay leaders, recruit lay leaders, make hospital visits, minister to parents, or ask for their forgiveness, plan future events, produce flyers, videos, and slideshows, study, write sermons, and sometimes it's multiple sermons per week, preach the gospel, manage a worship band, set up for worship gatherings, and oversee worship gatherings. That's a pretty good list of things that a youth guy has to do. And in all honesty, there's a whole lot of lead pastors and other pastors out there that have that same level of responsibility or an even greater level of responsibility. On average, less than 10 to 15% of a pastor or minister's time is devoted to the study and proclamation of God's word. Tragically, the era of good study, scholarship, and exposition is pretty much gone. The true ministers of old who spent 20 to 30 hours a week reading and writing sermons have vanished, and they have been replaced by cruise ship ministers or coach ministers. Guys who always point people towards things to do uh, or guys who always give these clever little pragmatic formulas that are meant to sort of improve our quality of life. You know, do these seven steps. S, do, do S, do U, do C, do C, do E, do E, do D. And what do you get? You get succeed. The problem with the church from the top down is that it has forsaken its first love, which is the word of God. That's a true problem in the church today. Some of us know that. Some of us don't. Many of us know that. We have forsaken our first love, which is the word of God. Ministers would rather be busy with stuff to do than to be secluded or isolated away in study. They would rather take the word of God and throw it at their topics than to emerge themselves in the text, in the context. They would rather deliver pep talks than to rightly divide the scriptures. And the church is following their lead. It's really like the blind leading the blind. And the fruit, the fruit of all of it is rampant, unprecedented biblical ignorance. Many in the church can no longer discern the difference between the devil's schemes for ministry and the Lord's methods for ministry. And because of that, the devil is unleashing carnage in the church. He really is. We, we've become so biblically ignorant that we don't know how to do ministry according to the Scripture, and so we go with the next best thing, and the next best thing is always the devil's scheme. And I know some of you in here are thinking, I can't even imagine that ministers would willfully... Well, I don't think they willfully do it. I think they're oblivious to what the truth of Scripture teaches, and they just do what everyone else does, or they do what makes sense, or they do what is practical. But God actually has a way to do ministry according to the scripture. And it always produces the greatest fruit and glory for God. It's a very, very frustrating thing for me to read all the time, to see these things and to, and to interact with people and, and, to, and to sense through what I'm reading is that, man, so much of the church is just clueless on how to do gospel-centered biblical ministry. I just, I get so frustrated with it. And I don't get it perfect. There's times where I go astray and, and, you know, jump on board with the next dumb thing, you know. And, and we're feeble people that are trying to lead this thing. Man, it's all the Lord. But at the same time, we have a massive responsibility. 
We'll be judged, the ministers, more critically than others by the way we lead the church. And if we're not doing things biblically, we're getting ourselves in a lot of hot water. The big fruit of all of this is rampant, unprecedented. Never in church history has the church been dumber about the scripture than now. Oh, it's insane. It's incredible. It's incredible. Unbelievable. We can't discern the difference between what we're supposed to be doing biblically and and what we're not supposed to be doing and all that. And, And ultimately, the results are really catastrophic. And yeah, you got a lot of people at churches, and we say when there's a lot of people there, it's got to be right. It's got to be, the thing's happening. It's, they're biblical, because look at all the people there. Well, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of people at a corn concert. There's nothing biblical about corn, you know. <laughs> you know? My little, I don't have any hair. I, you know, just because there's a lot of people there doesn't mean it's right. Oh, it's, 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 just, it's just so frustrating. Well, The apostles knew that if study and preaching were to take the back seat, the results would be catastrophic. And so they gathered everyone together. They're impressed with this great need, and it is a great need, and the need needed to be addressed. But they gathered these Hellenists together, and they told them, we're going to remain faithful to what we've been called to do. Preach the word of God. God, that's what they were called to do. They're going to be loyal to that. That's what they're saying. We've been called to do this. We can't wait on tables. We've got to preach the word of God. And many a minister in the church today needs to make that stand. They need to stand against those who are above them, who keep forcing them to do more things. And say, I've got to be loyal to the word. Now, look at what they said next. Three. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you. See how the apostles called the Hellenist brothers? Big difference between their counterparts over here that are Jews too, local Jews that aren't treating them like brothers. Therefore, brothers, you're our brothers in Christ, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. The apostles may have rejected in some way the request to investigate and personally assume the duties of taking care of the Hellenistic widows, but they did come up with a solution to fix the problem. They told the Hellenists to choose men or deacons from their own ranks that the apostles could appoint to oversee the ministry. The apostles' spokesperson, who was always Peter, identified four qualifiers for these new leaders in our text. And this is where it gets real practical. Let's identify and discuss each of them. The first qualifiers, and some of you are going to take immediate issue with this. That's okay. Email Aaron. (laughs) The first qualifier is that they had to be men. Peter said, pick out from among you seven Men. The Apostle Paul backed this up by saying in 1 Tim 3.12 that deacons, and that's what we're talking about here, must be what? The husband of one wife. Now, some theologians support the idea of women deacons, and their rationale for this comes from Romans 8.16, where a lady named Phoebe, I named my dog that, not because of her, but... uh, 
We're just trying to remember you, Phoebe. You were a good, godly woman, and every time I look at my dog, I think of you. The potential, not deacon. Uh, we're a lady named Phoebe, okay? She's referred to in Romans 8.16 as a servant. Look in your translation. It probably says Phoebe was a servant. Now, the word for servant is occasionally translated minister, and on leave, uh, even less occasions, it's translated as deacon. Now, beyond Romans 8.16, there really isn't anything else in Scripture that seems to support women as deacons. Now, you've got to hear me. This is not to say that women aren't gifted and talented. The inference from Scripture is never that. For crying out loud, when, when Jesus uh, you know, was hanging on the cross, the only folks there were a bunch of women and a, you know, one of the apostles who kept saying, the one that Jesus loves, Mama's boy John. So that'll tell you something about the character and strength of women. Women are amazing and gifted and talented and called to serve God in a number of ways, extraordinary ways, in ways that guys just are feeble and cannot pull off. I can testify to you that without, right now, before my wife, without her discipleship, without her love, without her support, without her being like Jesus to me, for I don't know how many years now, I would so not be the guy that I've become. And God has still got me in a major process of change. But my wife, God has used my wife in extraordinary ways. And so for men to be called to this position and not women is not an insult, as our community and culture would say. Oh, how dare they say that about women? Women should be able to do anything. Well, technically, women can do anything. They can do everything that men can do, but God has a particular way of doing things. He has an order to things. And what that says to me is that, okay, women, you can't do these things. What it says to me is, men, we really need to step up and quit playing games. Because so often women step up because men are not stepping up. Shame on us. But there is no degradation of women here by any means. Women are called to serve in various ways. Now, because of the lack of scriptural support for women deacons, I don't support it. But my position could change if... You know, if I saw a scripture and it declared it or whatever and, and there was good scholarship to kind of articulate that, then, you know, I'm not some hardline, crazy, maniacal, oh my gosh, they've got a woman, oh, you know, no. But for the most part, what did Peter say? Pick out from among you seven men. And what did the apostle Paul say? The husband of one wife, which was hard in that culture because it would have been the husband of like six wives, Right? Or Solomon, the husband of 700. What a, do you have a filing system? You know what I mean? Can you imagine the complaints that he heard? I got one of them, and she's got archives. 700 of them. Had to be a guy, man. The second qualifier Peter identified is, and that's a good thing, the second qualifier, they had to be men, just not normal men, they had to be men of what? Good repute. To be of good repute is to have a you know, good godly reputation amongst people, especially in the public. It means to be above reproach or blameless. You, know, you can't have men serving as deacons, or really in any capacity, you can't have men serving as deacons in the ministry of the Lord who are holy at church and loose when they're away, especially in the world and out in the culture at our jobs and all that stuff. You know, when you're at your job, and most of us serve in the church to some capacity, you got to 
you got to have integrity, godly integrity. you got to be the same guy wherever you go. Isn't, it, isn't that the temptation? Like when we're around all our Christian brothers and sisters, we're like Spurgeon. When we get around a bunch of hooligans, we're like hooligans, right? With a Christian edge. That's not right, but I did it, and that's why I'm going to repent. You know, I mean, we just play all these games. No, these guys had to be men of good repute. Repute means reputation, which means they can't have people that have different views of them out in the culture, like at the workplace or whatever. You know, if, if I were to go to one of your workplaces, and, I, and, I, and John is a godly man, and he has a farm and a ranch, so I'd have to interview squirrels. What do you think of John? He gives us nuts all the time. It's great. If I were to go to your job and ask your boss or ask your coworkers, what do you think about Cameron? Is he a godly man? Oh, you don't even know, dog. No. You know? Oh, he cusses all the time? Or, or yeah, man, he's a godly guy. We try to get him to go out with us all the time, party and everything, and we go to P. Wexford's and put him down, and then we fall down, right? And then we get towed out of there. But he never goes with us. Well, that's a great repute. That's a great example that he's setting. Well, it's that way for these guys. They had to be known as godly men. They had to have this godly integrity. You know, so-and-so, if you ask somebody on the street, so-and-so's a godly man, man. You know, he's not perfect. Well, I get that, but he's a godly man. Qualifier three, they had to be men who were what? Full of the Holy Spirit. Men who are full of the Holy Spirit are also filled with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. One of my great, or one of the great passages, one of my favorites, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, lists these things. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, these fruits, these things will characterize the person who's full of the Holy Spirit. And the deacon must be full of the Holy Spirit and must characterize those particular fruits and they go beyond those fruits there's more of that and and what are the reasons why that they need to be full of the holy spirit and you know and possess these fruits and all that because their ministry is geared towards caring for god's people man to care for god's people you've got to be loving you've got to be joyful because god's people are usually i know i'm one of them i'm down in the dumps you, you got to be a peace lover. You know, you can watch MMA, but don't put, you know, your <laughs> co-Christian in an arm bar just for the heck of it, you know? You, you, you got to be patient, right? Think of ministering. Think just th- Some of you guys are newlyweds. Are your, your patients being tested already? Okay. I know they are. Mark's all, ha! You got married like six minutes ago. We did the service at the first service. We didn't have a first service, and he got married 20 minutes ago. Hey, think about this. If, if, you're gonna, if, if, if you've been called and anointed to deal with God's people, you're going to have to be patient. Why? Because people require massive patience, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially meatballs like me. You're going to have to have extreme patience to deal with somebody like me. Right? You're going to have to be anointed with that. You're going to have to be kind. You're going to have to be filled with goodness. faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why does the deacon have to be full of the Holy Spirit and these fruits? Because it takes all of those things to be able to minister to God's people. Big time. 
Look at the example of Moses. You're talking about a man who bore these fruits like crazy. He had to deal with a million of them. Eh, quail, manna, water, golden calf. You know, just a miserable group of wandering people, man. This guy was like Superman. I mean, how do you do it? I'd be like, kill them. Send fire on him, right? And then it'd come on me. So you have to be filled with these things, right? You know, the sheep, God's people, are, are difficult to deal with at times. We're all difficult. I, I, I'm a sheep too, you know. I, I, just as a pastor doesn't mean that, oh, I'm just here and I don't, you know, I can't tell you how many exciting and creative scenarios I've created for the elders and deacons who have overseen me over the years. Wow. I had a write-up list at Big Valley like this. Cannot believe you did that. Sign. Flog me. No, they never flogged me. Now, what else? What was the fourth qualifier? I got some floggings there. They weren't fun. Qualifier four, they had to be men who were what? Full of wisdom. Wisdom means to have the capacity to understand and as a result to act wisely. It means to make good use of knowledge. In our culture, we believe that wisdom comes with age, don't we? Oh, he's old and wise. Isn't that what we believe here? I mean, that's what I hear all the time, right? He's really old. He's really wise. Well, you know, wisdom can come with age if you take your experiences and learn from them and change from them and help others with them. That would be wisdom. But I think that that's a false philosophy. Wisdom does not, it's not a default. You know, age does not, the default isn't wisdom. It doesn't always produce wisdom. Because if it did, then why are there always so many old folks in casinos? Count the blue hairs next time you're at Black Oak. And I hope, Black Oak, I hope you're not there. But if you are, for whatever reason, on an evangelistic mission, <laughs> trying to gather coins for the church, just look around you. Ah, I'm going to pull it, you know? There's a lot of old folks in casinos. Amen? Have you noticed that? And they're winning. <laughs> Young people going there, ah, there's 250. You know, I just lost all my money. But think about that. I, that is the stupidest example I could come up with. But there's truth in it, right? Oh, age. Yeah, age brings wisdom. Go into a casino and then come back and give me your new answer. Because it's not wise to gamble with your money. It's not wise to do that. How is that wise? No, 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 it's not. Age does not guarantee wisdom at all. The Bible teaches that wisdom is obtained in a number of ways. Proverbs 9.10 says, amazing passage, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wow. Psalm 19.7, the statutes, laws, word of God make the mind of the simple wise. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him well what do we got three examples here fear of the lord brings wisdom studying god's word man that makes the mind of the simple i'm a simple man wise and if you ask god for wisdom he grants it if you're above reproach you're walking in righteousness holiness he gives it so that's how wisdom is obtained now notice not through age notice how peter put full of the spirit before full of wisdom 
Peter knew that the deacon needed to lead according to godly wisdom and that the Holy Spirit must first be present and full before he could do so. Peter would, Peter would absolutely agree with the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Paul wrote, the Holy Spirit gives the person of God the utterance, the words of wisdom. It is only through the presence and fullness of the Spirit of God that a deacon can speak wisely or offer godly counsel. Apart from the Spirit of God, the only wisdom that remains is worldly wisdom, and most of us understand that that type of wisdom is unprofitable and really worthless. So the apostles instructed the Hellenists to find men of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom so that they could, what, appoint them as overseers over this new ministry. Now, let's take a look at what happens next. Before the Hellenists went out and began to search amongst their own ranks, the apostles further described what they would be devoted to. Look at four. They're not done saying, look, we're focused on these things. You can go do this. We're focused on these things. They said this in four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word go hand in hand. Every minister of the word should be devoted to prayer. Must be. Prayer makes study and teaching a communal conversation with the spirit of God. That's what prayer does. You know, without prayer, study and teaching becomes mere academia. That's all it is. It's an academic exercise. And academics really don't change anyone. Oh, they'll add to your knowledge. But what we need is to be prayerful. The minister needs to be devoted to prayer so that he is communing with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is indwelling him and filling him with wisdom and knowledge and changing him from the inside out. It's so critical. Prayer and the ministry of the word go hand in hand. Now, Peter absolutely put... Um, oh, notice this, too. Notice how Peter placed prayer before the ministry of the word. Okay, he did say devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, but there's another order here, just like there was in our last text. He put prayer before the ministry of the word. That is the correct order. Prayer is to precede every other duty or work in Christian ministry, especially the ministry of the word. You see, there's actually a way of doing ministry illustrated in the scripture here, and there's a way of praying, there's a way of preparation, there's a way to create ministry, there's a way to handle things. If we don't know the scripture, we don't know how to do it. Uh, MacArthur said something really brilliant on this little verse here on 4. He said, prayer must permeate a pastor's sermon preparation, or his sermons will be superficial and dry. He must also pray constantly that his people will apply the truths he teaches them. The man of God must also pray that he would be a pure channel through which God's truth can flow to his congregation. And then he says, the apostles pledged to devote themselves to their ministry set the pattern for all to follow. Again, instructions here on how to do ministry and where it begins with prayer and the ministry of the word and all these other things. Now, how did the people respond to the apostles' wise words? Look at five. And when they... And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prohoris, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. 
The text says the group was pleased, and the Hellenists chose. They went out, and they chose. They probably already knew in their minds, oh, we've got some good guys for this, man. They're of good reputation. We know they're filled with the Spirit. They meet these, uh, these requisites. They went out, and they chose seven men from their own kind. All of these men were Hellenistic Jews from birth, with the ex- exception of one, which is Nicolaus. Luke wrote at the end of verse 5 that he was a proselyte. A proselyte was a Gentile, non-Jew, who converted to Judaism by being circumcised, baptized, and offering a sacrifice in the temple. And so you have this cool mix of these seven guys. There really isn't anything known about six of them. We'll study a lot about Stephen next week and the weeks to come, but we don't know. There's really nothing in there further about these other guys. Now, after the seven were chosen... Look at what they did next. Look at verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. That is the apostles. The Hellenists brought the seven men and presented them to the apostles. The apostles then placed their hands on each of them and prayed. The laying on of hands communicated blessing in the Old Testament. But the idea here seems to be that of ordination, as in Numbers 27, 18 to 23. The apostles actions were very similar to the Jewish practice of semikah. In semikah, rabbis would lay their hands on and then pray over a man who had been chosen and trained for rabbinic duty. Semikah was also, and this is really interesting, semikah was also employed during the giving of sacrifices. Rabbis would place their hands upon the slain animal at the altar and then pray that God would receive its blood as a payment for Israel's sins. The apostles no doubt borrowed this practice from Judaism, which was their former belief system. And the church today still follows in their footsteps. We use semika when we anoint a man for ministry as an elder or deacon. We gather the elders of the church and lay hands on and, and pray over new deacons and elders. Now, during the early years, Christians borrowed a lot of practices from the Jews. They did. A lot of these things transferred over. Okay? A lot of them. Semika and, and even in their early, the early church's worship gatherings, we gathered just as the Jews did in their synagogues. We had the women on one side of the room, the men on the other. It was this weird thing. Women on one side, men on the other, guy up the middle. I mean, a lot of the things that we did earlier on transferred over from Judaism. And some of those things remain. And Christ is the fullness of all those things to be, you know, by the time it's all said and done anyways. So it's really interesting. I think that would be a neat study to do, is to go back and look at how many things transferred over to how many things that we actually do that came from. Wouldn't that be neat? All of a sudden we'd find out everything we do came from, you know. Would that be an evil thing? Not at all, man. It's an interesting, interesting thing to ponder. Lots of things have transferred over. Now, ultimately, there is a very high degree of seriousness here in the apostles' procedure. They dedicated these men in full public view. The prayers and laying on hands, or what we would call the anointing, represented the seven guys' commitments to, uh, you know, sacrifice themselves for the cause of Christ, to live holy, set-apart lives, and to love and care for the people of God. That's what's playing out here. So this is a very solemn, serious 
divine moment where these guys are being anointed and prayed over. And each one of these guys is making a public profession that I'm sacrificing myself for the cause of Christ. I'm committing, like almost in baptism, what baptism represents, there's that sanctity to this anointing. It's a very serious thing that's playing out. These guys would be held accountable by not only the apostles, but by all the people that they made this covenantal agreement in front of. Very neat thing that's going here. What happened next? Look at our last verse, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of, and this is fascinating, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke wrote that the word of God continued to increase. How? Why? The word of God continued to increase because the apostles committed themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word rather than going off to care for Hellenistic widows. Instead of doing it themselves, instead of getting sucked into the devil's scheme to get them away from preaching the gospel, they empowered the Hellenists to fix their own problem. And that is the way that Christian ministry should be done. Christian ministry is about, it's about discipleship. It's about multiplication. It's not about stacking innumerable things on people. And that's exactly what the church does today. Just, it just keeps loading them up with more ministry plates. They put so much on a ministry plate, it's a platter. They're at El Roselle delivering dinners to a family of a thousand. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular. It's insanity. No, the word kept going forward. Why? Because the apostles said, no, I'm not going to add anything more to my plate. I'm going to remain devoted to what I'm supposed to do. But guess what? We'll help you and we'll anoint some leaders. You go pick out the people that you feel are called to that and we'll anoint them and pray over them and empower them and they can go and make, meet that need. How often do we get sucked into that when the need comes? We just jump right into it, head first. Oh, I can tell you, I've been a man of spinning so many plates like a circus routine at church. At the last church I worked at, it was insane. I mean, it was just incredible. Christian ministry is about discipleship. It's about multiplication. It's about empowerment. It's not about loading pastors or lay people up with zillions of things to do. Many, many lead pastors do not understand this in the church today, and they're nearly killing their underpastors. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but four out of five seminary grads drop out of ministry in five years. That's probably a minimum of $60,000 worth of debt, and within five years, they're out of Christian ministry for good. Why? Because their pastors are destroying them with too many responsibilities. They load them up with a trillion, stu half the stuff someone else could do, half the stuff doesn't even need to be done. But they get these guys fresh off the boat. Hey, I'm a youth pastor. Here, go mow the lawn, you know, and then do all this stuff and meet with Mary Kay. And, and they just, they load these guys up. The makeup woman, I guess. I don't know where that came from. It's a Christian organization. Shame on them. I mean, they just load these guys up. Four out of five? Wow, man. Oh, it's incredible. Now, are there other reasons why they drop out? Yeah, many of them aren't called to ministry, and they think they are. But I, I can tell you, I can tell you firsthand experience, many of them drop out because of the way they're treated, the way that they're mistreated, and the enormous amount of junk that's dropped on them. You've got to do all these things. Oh, my goodness. Why do they drop out? Well, they're pressured to do so much. Their marriages 
are getting annihilated. Their families are affected because Pastor Daddy's never home. Oh, I'm serving the kingdom. Yeah. He's out and he's killing himself. And his, he's killing his wife and he's killing his kids. He's killing his neighbors. He's destroying his life because of all the stuff he has to do. Well, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this topic. Why? Because I experienced it firsthand. Whenever I raised the red flag and complained, the excuses that were given were, there are always lots and lots of things to do at a big church, so get used to it. Or you signed up for this, you knew what you were getting yourself into. Or a well-rounded youth pastor will have many, many things on their plate, especially at large churches. Or whenever, all of us have probably heard this one, whenever you add something to your ministry plate, you should take something off. We've all heard that, right? But when I brought that up, it was all, all the things that you have on your ministry plate are mandatory. So you can't take any of those things off. So we'll just make room right here next to the wasabi for one more thing to do. And I'd be sitting there going, oh, come on. How will I have time to study, to write two sermons every week? How will I have time to do these other things? How will I have time? How will I have time to do this, sir? Figure it out. Friends, I'm going to say this as plainly as I can. I don't care about how big a church is. I don't care about how small a church is. I don't care about the dynamics of churches. I don't care about what other churches are doing or their examples. I don't care about how much pressure the culture puts on ministers and the churches. There is never a legitimate reason to be unbiblical in ministry or daily life, ever. I'll yell it. I don't care. I'll yell it from Ralston Tower. There's never a reason to be unbiblical, right? You ought to be amen in the snot out of this if you've been through it. There's never a reason to be unbiblical. And there is a biblical way and format to do things. And we can see it clearly in this text when we're talking about ministers. Devoted to what? Prayer, the ministry of the word. Empowering others to serve ministry. Not prayer, ministry of the word, and a thousand other things. Man, I'm, I'm so insanely blessed at this church that we have elders on duty who get it and who say, Phil, we always want you to be devoted to those first things. In fact, they're always trying to take little things off my plate that I like. I like doing that. It's not yours anymore. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. They're not coming to me and going, you know, you're on backpack duty this week, you know, or you're fan holder got to study. Hold the fan. <laughs> I, I'm very passionate about these things because I've been through it. And it's, it's just such a difficult, difficult thing. But I will say before you, and hold me accountable, please, there's never a reason to be not biblical. May we be a biblical church. May we be a biblical staff. May I be a biblical lead pastor. Cameron, do not let me destroy you with things to do. Raise the red flag, and I'll say, those things are mandatory. <laughs> I'll probably do the things that, I've been, that have been done to me. Don't let me do it. Hold me accountable, my friend. Devote yourself to prayer, Cameron, to the study of God's word. Okay? I'm winking at you. <laughs> and I'm saying it out loud, and I'm winking, because winking's a secret thing. <laughs> Can't wink in front of this many people and get away with it. Now, when you, and here's the thing, man, 
If you're in a setting and you're overwhelmed, when you bring that to your overseer's attention, it's, it's almost always met with resistance. And there's always excuses given and all this stuff. But the, resist, the fact that you are overwhelmed and have all these things to do and the fact that there's resistance just goes to show that there's also biblical ignorance in those who oversee you. And I'll go out on a limb, but I'll say there's also proof that they're actually serving Satan. And no minister is going to admit to that and say, oh, I love serving the devil. They don't want to serve the devil. I haven't met one yet that says, I love serving the devil. I've met people outside of the church that love that. Ministers are inadvertently doing it. Why? Because they're pushing and proclaiming and clinging to non-biblical practices as ministry. And they're the devil's schemes. He's, the devil is, he, he is all over the church these days, guys. We would say, oh, he's not. No, we've, we've kept him at bay. Are you kidding me? Every week he's in our midst. And in some churches, his, his presence is so strong and powerful. And he's manipulating and conniving and causing dissension and, and problems and trouble and strife, disunity and all these things. Oh, man, we've got to be able to identify him, and the only way is to know the Word of God. Know the Word of God and practice it and live it, uphold it, protect it, and we will see him and his schemes, and we will be able to stand against him in the hour of that need. But now in the church, it's just like, he's here, and we're, we're comfortable with him. Oh, heaven forbid. Now, because of the apostles' steadfastness and commitment to prayer and the ministry of the Word, the word of God increased. Look at the fruit of the ever-increasing word of God here. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. People were getting saved. The church was growing. Even some of the religious leaders were drawn in and saved by the gospel. It says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. These priests were not the Sadducean priests. They were just under priests. They, they, they were helping in the temple or from faraway lands who had traveled there for Pentecost. These were the poor of the priests. But for crying out loud, man, the gospel and the Christians are loving and getting the truth out that the apostles are proclaiming it, and it's starting to permeate the religious system. And priests were coming to faith. The Christians were making inroads into the temple worship services and into those servants and stuff. This is amazing stuff that's playing out here. And I suspect that the conversion of this great many priests played a huge part in the persecution and death of Stephen. Because the religious leaders were watching all this happen and they couldn't stand the fact that their countrymen, all these Jews, were getting saved. As soon as their own kind started to get saved, it really turned the heat up for them. And we'll read in the coming weeks about what happened with this godly man who stood his ground just as we need to stand the ground. Ending thoughts. This is the part that I don't like. Because we've already heard so much stuff and the Holy Spirit's ministering and, and, I, and, and I, I've never really liked trying to taper it down to one thought, but but I don't know. Let's take away what we've learned and then maybe just look at this too. There's so many principles and lessons to walk away from today's text, but one that seems to really stand out is from verse 2, and this really impacted me. Peter said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The question I have for us, for me, for all of us, are there things in our lives 
that we need to eliminate so that we can be freed up to do the things of God? That's a great pertinent question that comes right from the context and the text. Are there things in our lives that we need to deal with and eliminate so we can engage in the things of God? I mean, think about that for a moment. How about things like prayer? How much of your time is chewed up doing other things and you have no prayer life or a minimal one? Prayer is a thing of God. So vital, so important. It's the starting point for all of Christian life. And how much time are, are we you know, spilling and, and investing into so many other things and yet we don't have a prayer life? What needs to go to free you up to have a prayer life, to spend time in daily prayer? Good prayer, not just quick, oh, thanks for the burger. Amen. Where you're interceding for your townsmen. You see what's going on in our community? you have any idea what the gangs are doing to this community? Do you have any idea how many shootings and robberies and murders and stabbings beyond the gangs? How many car accidents people die in car accidents? How, how much crazy, stupid driving there is? How, how about how, the amount of homes that are being lost? You know they're starting to have a, a pandemic of, of West Nile virus because of all the swimming pools that have been abandoned and all the larvae and stuff that are in them in this community and all the communities because of all the empty houses and all the pools that are filled with nasty toadstools and everything. I mean, just think about the community and what's going on in it. And guess what, Pastor Phil? I've got so many things in my life that I can't intercede for this community or even for my own brothers in Christ. We ought to be ashamed. Another godly thing. How about serving one another? Oh, I just got so many things on my plate that I just, I can't, I just don't have time to serve the body. How about spending time with your spouse and family if you have them? Oh, but that's not a part of God's, oh yeah, it is. That's your first ministry. Hello? Hello? You know, especially for us ministers, that's big taboo. We get all mixed up and doing all the ministry and dealing with the sheep and writing sermons and all that. And, you know, my wife last night was nuking me on that. And it was because I was getting stuff ready for DJ. But still, should have probably been in that room and there with my family. But how, how much stuff do we need to eliminate so we could just spend a little time with our new spouse? Or our old spouse. <laughs> or our really old spouse. How about, how about what do we need to eliminate so I can actually do some evangelism? So I can actually spread the good news? Oh, I don't have time. I don't have time to talk about Jesus and the gospel. You don't know my schedule. Okay, if you're that slammed, why don't you just start doing it within those contexts, please? Oh, I never thought about that. My job is my mission field? Uh. How about loving your neighbors? How about being the priest of your home, husbands? You've got a great high calling on your life if you're a married man. Even if you don't have a bunch of little McNuggets running around the house screaming like next door. McNugget. You've got a great high calling on your life to be your wife's priest, to lead her in all godliness. Well, I'm just, it works chaotic. I have too many things. I can't, 
I can't do that. Really. If you can't eliminate things to be the priest of your home, your family is probably going to get ruined and so is your marriage. Could end in divorce. How about Bible reading and study? Boy, that's always the one bringing up the rear, right? I just don't have time to read God's Word. I don't have time to study it. Here's a big one. How about supporting your local church financially? Well, you don't understand. I got all this stuff I got to pay or, or I got all these things that I want to do with my money or, or whatever. And, and you know what? I don't bring the first fruits. I bring the old dried grapes. I got just too much stuff. And, and, you know, and when it comes to giving an offering to the Lord, that, that's just way back there in the back. We've all been guilty of that once, twice, or a thousand times. Guilty. Now think about these things. The things of God are important, man. What is there in your life that impedes or prohibits you from engaging in these incredibly important things? What are they? Bring them before the Lord during communion. Confess them before your master. Ask Jesus for help, power, and a plan. And if you need to, you can come to me or to one of, the late, or one of our elder leaders. And we can pray for you and we can talk to you and, and help in any way that we can. We're here to minister to you guys. Well, let's transition into communion and let's just ponder these things before we take the elements just call upon the Lord and say, Lord, bring before me the things that need to be eliminated so that I can engage in your things. Confess those sins if you have them. And remember what communion represents. The finished work of Christ. Which means I don't have to walk out of here and get my punch list out Try to earn my way. Try to satisfy God with my actions so he'll be pleased with me. No, the work is done. And if you're in Christ, it's a finished work for you. Just rest in it. Rest in what he's done and accomplished. Acknowledge before him your sin. Confess those things. And his hand is not too short to help to minister to you. He will. I have to remind you that communion is for the Lord's people. If you're not in Christ, please do not take it. Just wait. Father, thanks for this time, and I pray that it's sweet, God. I know that I had a great time with you studying your word and pondering the things that I have in my life that, uh, that need to go. And quite frankly, Lord, there's some things that are good that need to be added. Things need to go and things need to be added. God, I'm in a process, and you're helping me, Lord. May I not be an excuse maker, our passion and desire should be obedience, Lord, to you. We should want nothing more than to please you with the whole of our life. That's what salvation brings into the life of a person. That's the cause and effect of grace. May we have a sweet time reflecting on our waywardness. And not for long, because we need to reflect on the glory of what you accomplished at Calvary and through that resurrection. Oh, what spectacular work you have done and completed on our behalf.
Oh, Jesus, may we forever worship you because of what you've done. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.